The parables of Jesus are among the most popular elements of the Bible. But what are the deeper stories behind them, and how do they relate to the modern day? Welcome to the Parables podcast series, produced by the Archdiocese of Brisbane. In this seven-part series, Archbishop Mark Coleridge takes us deeper into these stories. Thank you for joining us for the Parables Podcasts. Last time in our first podcast, we looked at the world of the parables in general and the way in which Jesus uses the parable so, so distinctively and with a particular focus and purpose. So it's against that general background which took us into some of the large themes of, of the scripture as a whole that I want to turn now and in the following podcasts to particular parables. Now, quite a lot of these parables you'll find come from the gospel I happen to know best, which is the so-called third gospel, the gospel of Luke. Now, Luke's gospel has many of the best known, best loved, and I think greatest of the parables. It's hard to know why. I mean, tracing sources of the, the different gospels is a very tricky task and one that can't detain us here. But it is quite striking that Luke, who is certainly a great storyteller, has got a profound sense of story, but many of the, the, the greatest parables and, and the best known of them are found in, in his gospel and interestingly not found elsewhere. Some of the parables are in uh, certainly Matthew, Mark and Luke, the, the so-called synoptic gospels. We call them synoptic because synoptic in Greek simply means they see with the same eye. That's not true, of course, because each of their eyes are different and each of them offers a very particular interpretation of Jesus uh, who he is, how he teaches, his death and resurrection, and so on. So, so it's a bit misleading to call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic gospels. They don't quite see with the same eye. John is always a bit different, and, and you don't find so many of the parables in the gospel of John, the fourth gospel. But Luke is full of them. And in this podcast where I look begin to look at the particular parables, I want to begin with the one that's probably my favourite and I think in some ways is the greatest of all the parables and that is the parable of the prodigal son which comes to us in Luke chapter 15. Sometimes people have quibbled about the title, it shouldn't be the prodigal son, keeping in mind that the word prodigal, a bit unusual in English but it means, it means wasteful or extravagant. Some have said that it shouldn't be called the prodigal son even though the son is prodigal, the one who runs away. It should be called the parable of the prodigal father because it is the father in the end who is extravagant, as we shall see. In the end, it doesn't matter what we call it. Uh, it does matter that we understand what's going on in this parable. And I have to say, I've been reading and studying this parable and teaching it for years and years and years, and yet every time I turn to it, I seem to discover something that I haven't seen before. This is one of the things that's fascinated me with scripture over the years as one who's studied it and taught it, that you, you never reach an end with any of the biblical texts. You never reach a point where you can say, I have reached bedrock. I've exhausted the capacity to generate meaning in this particular text. If you ever think that with scripture, you know you've got a problem. Because it is, in our belief, the word of God, it has a kind of an inexhaustible quality about it, a kind of infinity. Uh, these old texts have a, a, an endless capacity to generate new insight, fresh meaning. And that's certainly true of this, this, great, uh, 
this great parable. It's important to, to ask, who is Jesus addressing in telling the parable? And uh, the, the answer is those who, who were troubled by the fact that Jesus was mixing with sinners. And he wasn't just mixing with them. He was actually eating with them. And this was unthinkable in the religious cosmos of the Judaism that was familiar at the time of Jesus. It was the, the whole basis of that religious cosmos was the separation of darkness and light, uh, God and sin. So, so the thought that anyone who claimed to be the anointed of God could sit down with sinners was just uh, outrageous, really. And, and so these people who, who would have been good people who believed that the coming of God's kingdom would be hastened if there was perfect obedience to the law of God, the Torah, they were passionately committed to, to a radical obedience of God's law in order to hasten the coming of the kingdom. Now, it's easy for us these days to condemn these people, but by the lights of their own time and the lights of their own religious cosmos, these were good people, like the Pharisees were among them, and it's easy for us to stick the boot into the Pharisees, and they do get a bad press in the New Testament, but I sometimes think that perhaps uh, the press they get wasn't totally warranted. They're the products in some ways of a bad system, and we'll see this later on with, with other parables, that very often it's good people in a bad system, and I think we all know that feeling. So, so Jesus is speaking to people who are scandalised by his mingling with sinners and he doesn't engage in rabbinic debate or theological discussion. Again, he turns to the power of story and in doing that he reaches deep into the world of the Bible where words create worlds. So language is powerful but it becomes even more powerful when that language is shaped as a story as it is in this parable. Now, I've said already in the first podcast that these parables begin in an ordinary, everyday world that you and I know. And that is absolutely true of this particular parable. Because here you've got a father with a troublesome son. Does it sound familiar? There's something almost uncannily contemporary. The boy is restless, the younger boy wants to spread his wings. Again, it just sounds so much of our own time. Uh, the boy is looking for what? He's looking for freedom. Spread his wings, break out, become who he really can be and wants to be. So he's looking for the right thing, a kind of freedom. The human being is made for that. And again, the Bible insists on that constantly, that we were created for freedom. We were not meant to be slaves. We were created to be free and therefore to be, as the book of Genesis says, sons and daughters of God, God's own flesh and blood, not slaves, but sons and daughters. So it begins in a very recognisably ordinary human world. Now, these two boys, they, they can seem like chalk and cheese. You think to yourself, how on earth... Could they be brothers? They seem so different. And how could they be fathers of their own son, at least the young boy? How could he possibly be father, the son of his own father? Uh, neither boy, in fact, 
in any way resembles the father. They must have been like their mother, perhaps, who isn't on the scene. We don't know where she is. But anyway, the two boys are utterly different from their father. And though they seem so utterly different one from the other, what we'll see as the story unfolds is that they are pathetically alike. And, and it's crucial in this parable to understand how these two boys, so seemingly different, are in fact uncannily and pathetically alike. They bear a very strong resemblance, despite initial appearances to the contrary. Now, come back to the younger boy. The other thing I'd just say before we, we turn to the younger boy is try and place yourself in these parables. Where do you see yourself in the story? Again, the, the biblical story is not once upon a time or back there or out there somewhere. This is your life. I've said that endlessly to students I've taught over the years, usually waving the Bible at them, but th this is your life. So, so as you listen to this and, and, and ponder the parable, which you know so well in some ways, uh, try and place yourself in the story. In what sense is, is this the story of your life at this time, wherever you are on the journey? Now, the younger boy, I've said, is looking for the right thing, freedom, but he's absolutely looking for the right thing in the wrong place. It's St Augustine's unforgettable definition of sin, and I've never heard better, that sin is looking for the right thing in the wrong place. It's like in the, it, with the story of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, when the human being reaches up for the forbidden fruit, the human being is, is looking for freedom again. There it is. But in looking for the right thing, ultimate freedom, in the forbidden or wrong place, the human being finds the exact opposite. And that is, the, according to Scripture, that's the cast-iron logic of sin. If you look for the right thing in the wrong place, you will find the exact opposite, most certainly. So, so according to Genesis chapter 3, in looking for the right thing in the wrong place, the son becomes a slave. And that's exactly what happens here. See, in Genesis chapter 2, we've seen how God says to the human being, come here, I want you to join me in the ongoing work of creation. You who are created in my image and likeness, I want you to be my son working with me, my daughter working with me. You're not a slave. The ancient world might have said you're a slave, but the God of the Bible says, no, you're not. You're a son, you're a daughter. So that, that, this question of son or slave is one of the great keys of the whole Bible. And that's, again, where this parable doesn't happen in a vacuum. It takes us right to the heart of the Bible. So he goes off with the money to which he was entitled and he's looking for freedom. And where does he find himself eventually? in a pigsty as a slave. So, so again, the cast-iron logic of sin. The son, looking for freedom, ends up a slave, not only deprived of freedom, but hasn't even got enough to eat. Now, keep in mind what I've already said about the moment when the parable turns strange. C keep your eyes peeled for that moment because of the kingdom moment. Now, slave in a pigsty, not even enough to eat, 
all his money gone, what happens? We're told he comes to his senses. Now the question is, what does it mean for him to come to his senses? What does it mean? Well, it doesn't seem to me to mean repentance. What it means is he, he decides to, he better go home because at least there he'd get a feed. But there's no hint that he sees, as it were, the error of his ways. In that sense, there's nothing strange or surprising about what he decides. He simply knows on which side his bread is buttered. So in other words, he's being driven by self-interest, by nothing else. So he decides to go home. And in the circumstances, he does what we all know so well. He prepares his words under pressure. He prepares his words very, very carefully. He gets the text just right to achieve his purpose and then he gets it word perfect. And you can hear him rehearsing the little speech all the way home. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your slaves. I'm going to give it to you again because you've got to focus on the words that he carefully prepares. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your slaves. There's the speech, carefully designed to do its work, achieve his purpose. Now, he finally gets home. And this moment has been magnificently captured in the great painting by Rembrandt, which you probably know. He falls at his father's feet, according to Rembrandt. And he begins his prepared speech. He's got it word perfect. Off he goes, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father says, stop. He never finishes his carefully prepared speech. The father cuts him short. The question is, why does he cut him short? The answer is, as soon as the boy talks of worthiness, the father says, stop. He never go, the boy never gets the chance to go on and say, you know, the punchline, treat me as one of your slaves. Why does the father cut him off there? Because being son is never a matter of being worthy. You're the son because you're the son because you're the son. It's what you are. It's not a matter of being worthy or unworthy. You are simply the son. It's who you are. It's what you are. So the father, you see, will have none of this business of worthiness and no matter what the son has done, he's not a slave. So the father says, bring out the, uh, the best robe, which almost certainly would have been the father's. Put, on, put my best robe on him. Uh, put the sandals on his feet, the freedom of the house. And you can also put the ring on his finger. Now, the ring wasn't just decoration. It was the signet ring, which means the father gives the boy now the freedom to sign the checks himself with the signet ring. He doesn't have to ask even. If he wants to do it all over again, he has the freedom of the son because that's who and what he is, full stop. Okay, so we've got the younger boy back home. What the father has done 
This is the strange moment, you see, of the parable. This is the kingdom moment. Not when the boy decides to go home, but when the father sits there in the living room and looks through the window and sees the boy coming. Now, if he, we were to stay in the conventional world, the father would look through the window and say, oh, here he comes. I knew he'd be back. And wait for the boy to come cringing back, knock on the front door. No, what we're told is that the father runs down the drive to the boy. Now, again, for an oriental elder to run like that would have been most undignified. You see the extravagance of the father and the welcome that he offers the boy, not just cutting him short, but running down the drive, embracing him, we're told, and kissed him. That's when the parable turns strange. The extravagance of the God whose kingdom is coming. That's why people say it should be called the parable of the extravagant father. And in many ways, they're dead right. So there is the kingdom moment, the sheer extravagance and almost the indignity of, of God, the father, running down the drive to welcome the boy who's done the wrong thing and, and embracing him and kissing him, saying, put the best robe on, his, on him, put the shoes, the sandals on his feet and put the ring on his finger, the signet. Okay, now, the older boy... He's a very good boy. Again, seemingly so different from his brother. He's been out in the fields slaving for the family business. And he's been like that for years, he says it. In other words, he says, listen, all these years I've slaved for you and you've never once offered me a, 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 a kid to celebrate with my friends. And yet here this... This ratbag son of yours, he never calls him my brother. He says, son of yours. He's your son. He's not my brother. He comes back and you kill the fatted calf. In other words, what the older boy is saying is, I'm worthy. And he's not. And to the extent that he says that, he's like his younger brother. He's locked in the pigsty of worthiness. And that, that, that's where the two brothers are so pathetically and even tragically alike. They are, both of them, imprisoned in the pigsty, the slavery of worthiness. And, and the whole parable is, is calling them and us to, to come out of the pigsty of worthiness and to accept who and what we are, sons and daughters. That's the bottom line. So... The father then, in some of the most touching words in the whole of Scripture, simply says to the older boy, my son, you are with me always and all I have is yours. See, the, the, the absurdity of saying I'm worthy to receive this, that which is yours already. You don't have to earn that which is yours already. I mean, that, that, that's the, the absurdity of the world of of worthiness. You think you have to earn that which is yours already. My son, you are with me always and all I have is yours. Was it not right that when this, your brother, comes home that we not celebrate like this? For he who was dead has come to life, he who was lost is found. So the father says, your brother, your brother. So for the older boy to come out of the pigsty of worthiness 
is to discover his brother as brother. Here you have an echo of Cain and Abel, where Cain, having murdered his brother, says, Am I my brother's keeper? In answer to God's question, Where is Cain your where is Abel your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that in that great story is no, Cain, you're not your brother's keeper, you're your brother's murderer, but you are in fact your brother's brother. So Cain has to set out on a journey to discover the world of fraternity, his brother as brother. The, the older boy is exactly in the same boat. He has to discover his brother as brother if he comes in out of the, it comes in from the pigsty, the slavery of worthiness. Now, I said that the parables of Jesus are always unfinished. This is supremely true of this one. There are two things we don't know at the end of this parable. The first is, does the younger brother, take, with the signet ring, does he do it all over again? He's been given the freedom of the son and therefore he can do it all over again. So younger boy, do you choose to use your freedom, even abuse it, in order to do it all over again and end up back in the pigsty of worthiness? looking for the right thing in the wrong place. With the older boy, what we don't know is whether he comes into the party or not. The party's not going to stop if he stays outside, locked in a world of resentment, cutting off his nose to spite his face. So does he finally decide to come in and to greet his brother? That's the question. And that's the question that's addressed particularly to those people to whom Jesus addressed the parable. Will they come into the great feast of the kingdom of God and share the joy, discover the fraternity, or will they simply stay outside, locked in a world of worthiness and resentment of us and them? Those questions are uh, not questions back there or once upon a time. The, the, the question is as relevant to us now as we listen to or read the parable as it ever was when Jesus first spoke the parable to those people who thought themselves worthy and were quick to condemn those who had looked for the right thing in the wrong place. So, so there we have one of the greatest of all the parables that, that confirms what I said about the parables in general in the first podcast, an ordinary world that turns marvellously strange in the extravagant welcome of the Father and then open-ended because we are those who, having returned to the Father and met his welcome, decide not to do it all over again. And we are those who choose not to stay outside, locked in a world of worthiness and resentment, but to come into the feast of the kingdom which has been prepared for all of those who are daughters and sons. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Parables podcast series. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow the Archdiocese of Brisbane on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube or subscribe for more podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Spotify.